Hi, Andrew. Hi. How are you, Carmen? I'm good. How are you? Good. So my full name is Andrew Grant Houston, but for short, I go by Ace. So um, especially in the queer community, I'm known as Ace. And even though I am bisexual, closer than anything, I'm not asexual. <laughs> and my pronouns are he, him. Thank you. I appreciate that. Well, I think I appreciate you taking the time to come speak with us. I know the Seattle mayoral race is going to be huge this year. I mm -hmm. think a lot of people, even outside of Seattle, are going to be paying attention because of the impact that Seattle has, um, not only in Washington state, but on the entire nation. Uh, we saw mm -hmm. all lights on us, all cameras on us just last summer, but that's not the first time that's happened. And Seattle tends to be seen as kind of a leader in progression. But our yep. politics don't always match up with that. Oh, so I'm mm -hmm. really excited to have this conversation. So thank you so much. Yes, of course. I am happy to be here. Thank you. So you just mentioned that you're from Texas. So I want to know, like, when did you move to Washington? How long have you lived in the Capitol Hill and Seattle area? And what are mm -hmm. some of the biggest changes um, that you've seen during the time that you've lived in Seattle? Yeah, so I am originally from Texas, born and raised. Uh, I was born in San Antonio, kind of moved around a little bit in that area. Lots of like small towns. I even lived on the border in Del Rio and then went to school at the University of Texas in Austin for architecture. And so I lived in Austin for just shy of 10 years. That was also when I went to school when I came out. And so that city is really important to me in terms of my first understanding of what it meant to be queer, what it meant to be in a, a gay friendly city in general. And I moved here at the end of November in 2016. So we are talking right after the election, um, moving to a place that just like anyone else moved here thinking like, okay, I'm gonna go to the most progressive city in the US super accepting and even when I came up here for a job interview because I came up here for the first time for that and it was a few weeks before I actually ended up moving here just kind of going around and seeing rainbow flags in stores and in retail shops that weren't even like clearly owned by queer people trans people LGBTQ and thinking like wow this is really different like even from being in Austin like that's not a thing it's like if you saw a flag it was only because it was owned by somebody or it was like a queer space it wasn't that people were being that visibly in support and so that was very different but similar to what you said coming up here and being in Seattle you start to realize quickly that it's not as progressive as people say it is there's still lots of things that are um, pretty conservative and I, when I moved up here, I first lived in Belltown. So I was subletting. That in itself was my first experience with the Seattle rental market, which was applying online, finding something on Craigslist, going through an interview process with my future roommates, and then like waiting for a call back. And so uh, I sublet there because it was close to where I was working. I worked for an architecture firm that was right by Pike Place Market. And so being in Belltown, being in Pike Ridge Market, like just getting that full Seattle experience of what tourists normally see was a big thing. But I spent all of my weekends up on Capitol Hill. And so after my sublet was over, I was like, I gotta move to the Hill because I am spending all my time up there anyway. I would rather just be there. And so I did that. 
want to say it was like May of 2017. So I basically have lived up on Capitol Hill since then, like for most of my time here. I think in also what we've seen with like Seattle, we've seen a lot of, especially with the pandemic, closing of businesses, mm-hmm. right? And most recently in the early mm-hmm. part of this month, we saw the closing of our place because they couldn't afford to renew their lease at their location. And the mm-hmm. pandemic has really also changed, I think, how Capitol Hill looks. And you, if you're elected as mayor, how do you prioritize the queer businesses or queer spaces that have really been struggling? Yeah, well, I even remember where Queer Bar is now, that it used to be Per, that Per was there and they had a similar issue where they could not afford their rent. And so they moved over to Montlake. No one went there because there's no way to get there if you don't know how to drive. It's not easy. And so they went out of business, but that it became Queer Bar and it developed over time. And so in that way, I know that our community is really resilient, but at the same token, we can't deal with all of the factors that are going on. And one of the challenges I know specifically with our place is that they were simply denied the ability to renew their lease. And so clearly something is going to happen where whoever owns that piece of property is looking to develop it because we're still a growing city. We're still a place where even after we're done with the pandemic, we know that people are going to move here. And so what they're probably looking at is like, okay, well, I can build more on here than what is currently available. And the problem that with that is that where you're allowed to currently build apartments or um, retail shops can only really happen either in downtown, in the neighborhood, Capitol Hill, or in the South Bend, where we have all of our black and brown communities. And it's been that way for a long time. What I've really noticed, especially when I moved here, is that things are speeding up very quickly. So what was happening really slowly and what was the trickle of like, okay, well, it's getting a little more expensive. Let me see if I can find a better job. Let me see if I can get a raise um, on the hill. Like, okay, well, maybe we'll charge like 25 cents more, or 50 cents more for a drink. You know, you're just trying to like get by. Now that process is speeding up. Hmm. And so you have businesses that simply can't afford to be able to make those same choices, but also, those businesses, especially LGBTQ owned businesses, don't own their own land, don't own the buildings that they're in. And so they're not the ones who are able to determine their own future. So for me, one thing I wanna do is recognize that we're still a growing city and that we need places to be able to build more apartments, but do it in a way that covers the entire city. In other words, not everyone needs to live on Capitol Hill. People can live in Laurelhurst, if they want to live in Laurelhurst, they can go live in Wallingford, in Green Lake, up in Lake City, like, we have a lot of land, but we need to actually be able to allow people to, like, build apartments and to build more condos, so that we, as a community, can take more stock, can actually be able to retake the land for at least us as queer people, as LGBTQ people, to have our spaces, and for neighborhoods like Columbia City that were predominantly black and even Asian for a long period of time to be able to own their own land, to be able to self-determine their future and maintain their culture. Because I think one of the biggest things that I'm concerned about is displacement of culture. And once you displace culture, it's gone. Yes, and a couple of things I wanna hit on because I didn't know that our place didn't have the opportunity to renew their lease. So really your experience as an architect and as a housing advocate 
really plays well into um, these systems and understanding yep. the gentrification that's happening. Because like you just said, this place culture, queer culture is still, it's still a very valid culture that mm -hmm. you thrive on Capitol Hill. I know I was born and raised in Renton and I went to school on Capitol mm -hmm. Hill in Seattle U and it has, mm, okay. has changed quite drastically. And so losing that, we, yep. there's feelings that people are losing that queer culture. Mm -hmm. And I love that you have that kind of that experience and that background. Can you, I want to touch on that a little bit more because again, I didn't know that our place didn't have the opportunity to renew. So naturally it seems like the owner of those buildings probably have more profitable ideas. In yep. Right. And I can even connect that to another issue that we're currently trying to deal with as a community. And that is the building that Kalani Brothers and Gay City is in is also going to go under redevelopment soon. And so then the question is, this great coffee space, a space that I actually studied for all of my architecture license exams. So before I got here, I wasn't a licensed architect and I actually did all my studying at Kaladi because it's one of the few places that's open late, but it is such a, a great center and community space. That space is going to go away soon. And so what is then the alternative for that? We currently don't have any other options. And so that's one of my biggest concerns, especially as an architect, is understanding that any type of project is going to take a couple of years. And so we have some time to kind of figure out an alternative, but also it's going to take time to build up those alternatives. So what are the other ways that we can think about maintaining that community, that identity, and really try and preserve the space as a queer space? Because there aren't that many neighborhoods across the entire US. And something that has been very clear to me especially in this social reckoning that just happened in this past year is that these spaces are so important for our protection, for our ability to maintain safe space. And so that's something that I really think about as a queer architect. And so then I want to ask again, and this is kind of a two, this is a, another question for you as, you know, as elected mayor, as, as a queer architect, because I'm now thinking back to just over a year ago, Fred Wildlife Refugee announced that it was closing its doors. Yeah. It wasn't able to um, afford its lease anymore because that building also got sold. Um, and I kind of, I want to ask like how, when we feel like Seattle's losing all its queer spaces, how does this intersect with mm -hmm. like gentrification and development of Seattle's black and brown yeah. neighborhoods? And as mayor and, you know, and as an, as an architect and housing advocate, like, how, how do you even plan to start to address it? Cause like you just said, it's gonna take years. Yep. So first off, I like, I am, I was brokenhearted when I saw the news about Fred Wildlife. And a big reason for that is because I had just gone to the New Year's Eve party that happened uh, at the turn of 2020 and thinking like, okay, we're having a new year. And it was actually the first time I had ever gone to Fred Wildlife Refuge because I didn't even, I had heard about it. And I was just like, I have no idea where this place is. Like, I don't understand. You're telling me it's like by CCs, but I don't see anything. <laughs> and then when you walk through those doors and then you just see the space, if you like go in, you're like, oh, this is actually like double height space. And then that night there were so many great performances. The thing I love about our performance scene here in Seattle, and especially like our drag scene is that it is so alternative and so accepting of so many different types of creative expression. And so that night being able to see all these great performances, being able to see Lucci, who's like one of my favorite drag performers, like that group, uh, that duo, 
that night and thinking like, oh, this is like one of the greatest nights I've ever had. Like, I can't wait to come back again. And then we have the pandemic and then they decide not to continue just because that area is also getting redeveloped because it's prime land and people want to build apartments and we need housing. And that's the hard thing too, is like, we have such a need for housing and, of, and housing at every single level of affordability. So basically like for our queer tech friends who make lots of money for our um, LGBTQ baristas who do not make as much money, but still like want to live in a safe community in a neighborhood that is welcoming and inviting. And so I definitely think about this a lot in terms of how are we maintaining these queer spaces and how are we allowing for more housing? And what I really want to focus on is more of a, a larger role in terms of the city playing in building permanently affordable housing, which means like it's affordable today, it's affordable for the next 50 years. And in that way, at least trying to maintain some semblance of like affordability for any person within our community to be able to live on Capitol Hill. But also one of the opportunities is that if we use the space here and let's say just like, okay, the city takes a big stance of, of starting to acquire land in specific neighborhoods like Capitol Hill, that we can partner with groups like Red Wildlife Refuge, with groups like Gay City, with Lifelong and say, look, we want to design a space dedicated for you to be able to be in this space for many decades. So in that way, we start to preserve that space. And I think if we really focus on that and recognize that our queer and trans community is so important and is also dealing with the pandemic in a way that's completely different from if you are non-identifying, especially um, if you are white and straight, that we need to do more as a city to be able to preserve those spaces. I really appreciate that because it's because we're only going to keep growing as a city. As a, as a lifelong Seattle like adjacent resident, I can say Seattle. I don't think originally was meant <laughs> to be this big of a city. It wasn't meant to be this kind of metropolitan or metropolitan. Who I can't talk. That um, it was it turned into, and so I really um, appreciate your priorities. And you and you specify three in your campaign announcement. You specify three priorities, mm -hmm. building 2,500 tiny homes for vulnerable populations, mm -hmm. um, creating a business income tax to fund apprenticeship programs. Mm -hmm. Corporate income tax, and then, yes, yes the last one is to restore our bus service to what it was before COVID. I have these three policy points that I started with, knowing that like one, right now I'm asking anyone in the city to submit policy on my website. So you can go to agh4sea.com slash vision. You can see the vision for what I think is the way that we move forward to create like a really inclusive city and kind of shift ourselves in this new direction because we have to do it quickly. But recognizing that all the policy can't be expected to come from just the community is like, I actually have to be the leader myself. And what are the things that I recognize that we can do quickly? We can address our homelessness crisis. Something that I always think about is LGBTQ plus youth who are almost half of the homeless youth in the entire US. So when you think about queer and trans youth representing 
as much as potentially like 10% of the, the under 18 population, but being close to 50% of those who are unhoused, that's a huge, huge problem. And I know that we know, especially as queer and trans people, and I, um, I'm sure you've probably dealt with issues myself, like similar to myself of growing up in a Latino household, dealing with machismo, dealing with, <laughs> your face, you're like, yes, this um, mm, yes, yes, recognizing that you can never truly be yourself. And if you are, then you can get disowned in how scary that is, especially in a, at a time like this where people are just trying to find shelter. And so knowing that housing takes a long time to get built, even if we start today, it's gonna to take about three years. And so what is a short-term goal? How can we provide shelter for the people who are currently outside dealing with the wildfires that we know are gonna come back in the summer, dealing with our sub-zero or freezing temperatures here right now? What do we do in the short-term while we build that long-term solution? The second piece of the corporate income tax is so that we can expand our apprenticeships. So I think something that we talked about, which was gentrification, I always try and separate it from displacement because I think displacement is a really, really bad thing. Gentrification is really saying like, okay, we want to increase value in this area. And especially because we still are in a capitalist society, unfortunately, that we want that wealth to be shared in the entire community. And so by providing access, by providing apprenticeships that people can go into, that they can get really great paying jobs, that they can actually help us build the tiny homes. They can actually help us, the community, to build the affordable housing that we need. And so we need to, to build that pipeline so that we can support people because apprenticeships, especially if you're with the union, like they're gonna give you a great wage, they're gonna teach you how to do your job because they want you to do it well, and you're gonna be able to provide for your family whatever your family looks like. And so that's a big one. And then the third one is restoring a service to what it was before COVID because so many people, especially in this area, especially um, if you are lower income, just don't have access to a car. And so we need to be able to restore service to what it was before so that people have the same reliability immediately as quickly as possible. And then in 2024, Let's have a really big movement to be able to get bus service to a place where you go outside, you're at the stop, you don't even have to think about when the next bus is coming because it just shows up. Like it's that fast, it's that reliable, and it's that frequent. What a dream. I, I, I love your yeah. I love them. I do have a follow-up question because now I'm curious because I think yeah. we, we saw um, the city of Seattle try to impose some some it wasn't a corporate income tax, but some sort of tax. I think it was on Amazon and they threatened to leave. Oh, the head tax in 2018? Yes. And I'm curious, are you afraid of like the corporate response to your to your corporate income tax? No. I think it's a great idea because <laughs> personally, my background, I used to work at I used to work at a um a youth program that set kids up and an opportunity youth with um internships and apprenticeships and things like that. And so I think your idea is mm -hmm. amazing. I love it. But for the corporations who might not want to pay that pesky little income tax, how do you plan to address that? I would do so in a way where we know what we have to do for the community in order to lift those at the bottom to really create this rising tide. And that's the name of my campaign is the rising tide and say, 
look, y'all have been making record profits, especially Amazon, especially these tech companies who are going remote where they're not seeing the same issues during this pandemic. And so in order to improve the quality of our entire city, especially for some of the issues that I know a lot of businesses downtown have with unhoused neighbors, like our, the people that we know that we connect with that I try and help with mutual aid, they just don't want to see them. They're just like, oh, I don't want to deal with it. I'm fine. No, this is how we're going to make you deal with it. We're going to make you pay an income tax. That money is going to go directly to helping those people because if we give them shelter, if we give them housing, then they're not on the streets. They're not creating the unsightly thing that you don't want to see, but you actually have to be a part of that solution. And so either you can build it yourself, which is like Amazon, if you want to put in billion dollars of housing and like actually build the housing and do it as a grant and not as a loan, because that's what they're trying to do. They're going to be like, oh, you know, we're just going to give you some money and we'll be fine. No. To either build it yourself or pay your taxes. Pay your taxes to create the systems, to create the structure where we can take care of those who are most vulnerable in our community. Because when we lift those people up, when we improve their quality of life, we are going to improve the quality of life for every single person who lives in Seattle. I completely, I, I completely agree with you. And I think that message could possibly even get across. And I, I really hope that if you're elected, that message does get across. And I love that you seem to be a, such an advocate for the vulnerable populations and like vulnerable people. And also in your candidacy announcement, you know, you mentioned, like you say, like you identify yourself as a queer, black, and Latino architect, housing advocate, and a high-risk individual. Mm -hmm. Could you expand on your identity and and why you ex why your experience yeah. specifically as a high-risk individual increases your qualifications uh, to be the mayor of Seattle? So, in many ways, my identity, especially growing up as someone who is black and Latino, but also growing up uh, raised by a single parent, my mo my mother who's a Latina. Um, that I have been subjected to a lot of the environmental racism that has occurred. I mean, like I deal with asthma and part of that is just because like growing up, my diet was not the healthiest and it's because my mom put food on the table and that was the important thing. It was just like, as long as there's food on the table, as long as you study, as long as you work really hard, then you can get into a good school. That was always the important thing, especially because she's a teacher. She's a public school teacher. And so it was always about like working hard, just trying to like get through things. And so we weren't necessarily thinking about like, okay, well, how do we access like fresh and healthy food? Like what's in season? Like that wasn't part of our thinking at all. And so that's affected me, unfortunately, in that I have asthma. I'm also obese. And so I'm a high risk individual, meaning if I were to get COVID, there is a huge chance that I would not survive. And so I definitely took that to heart as someone who has gone to school and has learned a lot about sustainability and even like um, my own biology, I guess, because I also suffer from something called thalassemia. It's like extremely rare, but it's basically that my blood cells are like super tiny as compared to like a regular blood cell. They're just like smaller than normal. And so when you talk about COVID in particular, which destroys red blood cells, it's a lot easier when they're smaller. So it's like all of these things. And that's why I have basically been in my apartment here on Capitol Hill since March of last year. Uh, I can think of 
one time where I was here for six weeks without having leave, left my apartment, like that I can like guarantee. I was like, yeah, I was here for six weeks. And also being a small business owner. So I run my own architecture practice and because of COVID, there are a lot of projects that stopped. And so without the eviction moratorium that we have, I could be homeless right now or have been exposed to COVID by being unhoused and not have survived. And so when we're talking about who are the most impacted, who are the most threatened, I, I think it's not only about my identities and like what puts me closer to those experiences, it's also recognizing that a lot of us, especially within the LGBTQ community are one paycheck away, one health diagnosis away from being unhoused ourselves. And so that is something I always take to heart with all the organizing I do and why I push so hard for housing in general as a solution to a lot of our things, because if we provide people shelter, you provide them privacy, safety, and not just medical safety, but also public safety, especially dealing with SPD. <laughs> and so uh, recognizing that, yes, my identities are a big part of it as to like why I have this perspective that helps me be able to recognize how any policy impacts not just myself, but also other people and have perspective to say like, okay, we're gonna put something in place. What, who is this really affecting? Who are we not thinking about? Who is not in this room making this conversation happen? But then also knowing that Seattle has a long history of simply talking about solutions and then not actually doing anything. And having been a part of those conversations, being like, okay, no, we gotta move. And I know, especially as an architect, as someone who has worked through the code, how we can make things better. So let's do it, let's act now, and let's go quickly. So you are motivated because you empathize, you have compassion because oh. of the experience and you, you know, you know the struggle of the many residents who live in Seattle, who've grown up in Seattle, who come to Seattle. And it, it seems that you're, that's the place that you're coming from. And I really, really appreciate that, especially, you know, as a housing advocate, as an architect. I think that's actually what we might need as Seattle's mayor. I really, the more I'm Thank talking you. to you, the more I'm thinking about it, a lot of the issues that Seattle is facing you know, are rooted in the fact that, you know, we aren't protecting our vulnerable populations. We aren't providing the proper resources for them all the time, even though Seattle is very mm -hmm. rich. Housing is still a huge struggle and it's still a battle mm -hmm. that seems to be almost like an unwinnable war is how I feel like it's described if you work for the city of Seattle or, or, or even King County. Yep. It's just never ending. But you also bring up another thing and, um, I, I, because you, you brought it up and I have to ask my, my profession is I'm a criminal justice professor. How? Oh boy. Okay. Yes. That's my, that's my profession. So I have to ask you brought up Seattle police department. Big issue that I, I witness as a professional is the disconnect between Seattle police department, the city of Seattle, like city council, for example, the mayor's office, mm -hmm. and then the community as mayor, how do you plan on healing, moving forward, uniting the community, the city council and Seattle Police Department to be effective and to address mm -hmm. you know, the issues of the summer of 2020? Well, short answer is we are reforming and defunding. So we're gonna do both, it's a yes and. 
that just like straight up, we're going to defund SPD. Like we're doing that. Longer answer is I want us to have a reform in our culture, especially like this is, this is the American problem is that we automatically associate public safety with the police. And so what I really want to emphasize, especially when I'm talking to our whiter neighbors, our straighter neighbors in the North End, is it's about 100% public safety, but less than 50% of that is the police. In other words, what are those other methods of public safety that we should be improving? One of them is preventative care. It's harm reduction. It's providing housing for people who are camping currently in the parks so that that's not an issue. It is providing uh, diversion policies for our youth who in many places are just acting out crimes of poverty. And so in that way, diversion tactics to be able to also create harm reduction and preventative care. Like those are some simple things. Some other ones are using our community led resources that have been working and have been effective like Share Wheel, which is uh, an organization that has its own like unhoused population and like tiny home village and um, other new alternatives to policing. Uh, one of the most direct ones that I think about actually was related to the budget. So if you don't already know, since the reckoning of like George Floyd and 2020's protests, so I live within earshot of Cal Anderson. And because I couldn't go anywhere, I was like, man, I'm really frustrated because I want to be able to help. I want to be able to support people that are on the ground. And so I essentially was on Twitter watching all the live streams, watching all the feeds and like updating people. I was like, okay, this is what's happening at the protest. This is who is there. This is what's going on with the police. This is where the protests are, uh, the protest groups are. This is where the medics are. If anybody needs anything, let me know. I will actually contact resources so that you can get things. And so that was my thing. It's like, I was helping to shift resources around just doing digital organizing. And through that process, we ended up getting to defunding the police where we're like, yes, we're gonna defund the police. We're gonna push to defund the police and going through and watching every single council meeting before my current job, uh, which is now with the council, but <laughs> going through that process and being like, okay, well, I'm actually gonna read the proposed 2021 budget by the mayor. And so I read the whole budget and I was like, okay, what are ways in which we can reduce the SPD budget? Because I'm just gonna be honest with you, like even if you look at it now, it's very high level. It's basically like this much money for this precinct and this much money for detectives and that's it. There are no details. They do not have to prove how they spend their money, which is a big problem. So we need to fix that. But there is this alternative that they have for what are called um, community service. Um, I don't wanna say it's officers, but it's like a community service organizer. Basically there is only one. There is one in South Park in Georgetown. And this community coordinator helps them. This is basically someone who is a city resource that lives in their neighborhood, in their community, so that whenever they have any problems and any issues, they can go to him and ask for help. And so what I want to do is actually expand that program and say, hey, instead of having only one in one place, let's have multiple of them. Let's provide these community-oriented 
individuals who are members of the city who are civil servants, but who do not provide an armed response. In other words, when there's a crisis, when there's an issue, the immediate response should not be, okay, we're gonna bring a gun and we're gonna go and deal with that. It's like, no, 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 no. So, so many of these issues I think are, are things that we know, especially like I've gone to parties like uh, QTPOC parties where like at the beginning we're like, okay, we're all gonna have a great time. But remember, if there's ever an issue, do not call the police. Like that's the first thing that we say because we know it's gonna be a problem. And so let's provide these alternatives that we know already work because we're already doing it on a very small scale. And so we just need to scale them up. And in that way, we can provide that 100% safety with less than 50% of it being the police. That's a that was a lot. <laughs> great answer. And here's why, because I'm just gonna say from a criminal justice perspective, that was a fantastic answer. Because I also believe that public safety doesn't have to equate to policing. And my father actually worked for Seattle Police Department for almost 40 years. He was the mm. first Puerto Rican born uh, police officer hired during like a, the height of affirmative action hiring. And so I come from like a family of like the that background. And I can say, you know, I can respect my father. I can respect his career. I don't have to respect how much we fund grossly, grossly overfund policing, especially when we compare it to how we fund education or healthcare. Mm -hmm or any other social service. Mm -hmm. And we've even seen, um, and the city is escaping me, but in Oregon, they have created a crisis response team. The CAHOOTS model in Eugene. Yes, I was just speaking to it a couple weeks ago um, in, in a panel conversation I was at the CAHOOTS program. And those are programs are examples of how we can divert public safety away from policing because we don't need to emphasize policing as much as we do. Public safety can be also, like you mentioned, preventative, which is something we don't invest mm -hmm. enough of our money in. So I love your answer. If I live in the city, if I live in the city of Seattle, I would vote for you for sure, just after this conversation. Well, thank you. <laughs> that shows that answer also shows a holistic view of the city. It doesn't just view like law enforcement and Seattle Police Department as the only agency to protect the city from all evils. That's not the reality. The reality is the, yep. the city has to heal itself by investing mm -hmm. in itself and not just its police department. And I love where your head is at. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. Is there anything else you'd like to share before we wrap up? Oh man, um, where do you live? I live in Renton. I live in Renton about 20 minutes south of Seattle. Uh, okay, well, one of my biggest things that I want to improve is not just transit or Seattle, but also recognizing that the displacement that has happened here is means that we have a lot of people who used to live in Seattle that no longer do. And so I hope to be a really great partner with our other neighboring jurisdictions, Brenton, Bellevue, other cities, and the county, so that we can improve transit for everybody, because it should be a right that people are able to get around to where they need to go easily without a car. I love that that's a final yeah. priority of yours because again, that's so important because again, Seattle is just not siloed, right? There's a lot of us that like, I used to live in Seattle. Well, I commute to Seattle when, you mm -hmm. know, when, I, when I get back to commuting and I don't commute anymore because of COVID, but when I get back to commuting, I <laughs> and so I really appreciate that because if I saw better Metro transportation services into the city, um, that, if that were expanded, I don't think I would feel the need to drive and fight that traffic as much. And so I think we're really looking at long-term solutions and investments. And so 
I wish you the absolute best of luck. I thank you so much for your time. Thank you. This is Queers Compared. Yeah. If you have any questions for Ace, where can they contact you to mention it one more time? You can contact me on my website, agh or sea.com. And that is for like the number. And of course, uh, that is also the same agh for sea on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. And my personal handle on Twitter and Instagram is the T-H-E Urban Ace. The Urban Ace. Well, I will make sure to follow you. We will make sure to link all your socials down yeah. below. And if you have any questions or comments for Queers Converse, please feel free to email us at queersconverse at gmail.com. And we hope to be conversing with you very soon. Thank you again, Ace. I really did appreciate this. Thank you, Carmen.